This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. In today's podcast, we hear how low-tech can make a difference in the progress towards the Millennium Development Goals in Tanzania. On the side of improved cookstove, there are no emissions, no smoke, and you use less fuel. And we'll take stock of the progress made in the past 20 years in the face of global warming and the struggles that still hold adaptation back. There is no automatic incentive for rich countries to decouple their emissions. So if there's no strong governance, the emissions keep going up. We'll hear about the use of big data for development. And finally, we'll discover what's in the pipeline for the coming months, investigation into border water wars. An incredibly large dam holding back a deadly amount of water. A golden opportunity. This is our time. This dam has caused a complete paradigm shift in the power dynamics of the Nile. And what's the story behind this mystery sound? Stay tuned and find out what creature produced that sound and what it has to do with innovation. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast. I'm John Escombe and today I'm joined in the studio by correspondent Julia Schell, who's fresh back from two months in Tanzania. Hello, Julia. Hello, John. So, Julia, what have you been looking into in East Africa? Well, I was curious to see what people there themselves mean by development and what changes they seek. Mm -hmm. So I traveled across Tanzania to find out how local initiatives approach the fight against poverty in sustainable ways. And I spoke to academics in the universities of Dar es Salaam, Morogoro and Mbeya. And I also visited local NGOs in these urban areas. And then I spent a month in the rural area of Karagwe and talked to community organizations and farmers in the villages there. Okay, so what's your strongest memory from the places you visited? You went quite a a way throughout the uh, country. What was your biggest memory? I was struck by people's willingness and openness to share their knowledge, exchange experiences and learn and work together. Here in Europe, we often talk about intellectual property and profit and who benefits from whose research. Mm. In Tanzania, all researchers and practitioners shared an understanding that knowledge that could help to improve people's lives should be shared as freely and widely as possible. Reducing poverty and hunger, as well as promoting environmental sustainability, um, are two of the goals set by the United Nations for 2015, of course, the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs. That's important, isn't it? Yes. The 2014 report came out early in July, and while it shows some encouraging progress in access to drinking water and in fighting poverty, there is still a long way to go to meet other goals, such as safe sanitation and environmental sustainability. So it looks like your trip talked to you a lot on what's achievable in this sense. Well, John, from what I learned in Tanzania, a fundamental problem is that poor energy and resource management are coupled with food insecurity because the majority of the population depends on agriculture. Mm -hmm. And on top, the lack of basic infrastructure like safe sanitation and access to clean water creates health issues. So to change this situation, none of the problems can be tackled in isolation. But you would be surprised to see how simple technology can really make a difference. So can you give us an example of such a technology and its impact on this set of problems? Sure, John. As people have no access to electricity and cannot afford fossil fuels, they cut trees for firewood. But the loss of forests causes soil depletion 
and that endangers food security. Dadala Ndibalema told me why they develop improved cookstoves to provide energy without having to cut trees and explained the advantages of those stoves. There are other biomasses which are left over there, they are not in use, like maize cobs, beans, husks, coffee shells, even banana leaves which are dried and you can use them like biomasses for cooking. Why not use those biomasses instead of cutting trees? That's when we start with microgas fires. On the side of improved cookstove, there are no emission, no smoke, and you use less fuel. So how are these ideas developed in the local context? Can you describe the cooperation on site? Was it quite a good feeling? Yes, indeed. It was inspiring because, as I said, a lot comes from combining knowledge on a local and the global scale. So one very interesting project between the German Technical University in Berlin and Mavuno, a local organization, develops a composting method that uses ecological sanitation toilets to enrich the soil with human waste. And by replacing latrines, they avoid the contamination of groundwater with pathogens and recycle the nutrients. Ariane Krause, a PhD student from Berlin, and Deodatus Vedasto, the project manager of Mavuno, described the research to me. We have the soil, and from there we are using the organic residues for bioenergy production. And the crops, they offer heat that we can use either for preparing food or yeah. heat that we can use for the sanitation. So we use it for heating the feces, we use a technology that is called microgasifier. So it can work with sawdust, and then it is giving us enough heat to heat the feces. One important part of the soil is the addition of charcoal that will remain in the soil. We do composting with the different materials like uh, charcoal, the uh, ashes and the uh, uh, kitchen waste. Then we mix together to the compost area. So after some time, like three months, we just get a, something like a black soil, which mm. is called a terra preta. So it's still like a circle. And how does this knowledge spread in the local communities? A lot of the skills are transferred through local workshops in villages, but there are also great initiatives to teach technical skills at school. For example, Mavuno builds a secondary school for girls and they will include topics around sustainability in the curriculum. Well, that sounds really promising, but what are the challenges to these initiatives? Well, although the government has some development schemes in place, the funding is not sufficient to reach the most vulnerable communities in remote areas. And the capacities of these small local NGOs are very limited, of course. So progress is fairly slow, but are things moving in the right direction, do you think, Julia? We have to understand that these are small-scale solutions for local communities. So, yes, progress is slow-paced, but these initiatives do really make an important difference. Well, Julia Shell, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you, John. I'm John Eskam and this is the SciDev Net podcast with news and views on global development. Now, among the MDGs, one of the targets that the world is really struggling to meet seems to be environmental sustainability. Well, here with me, SciDev.net multimedia producer Lou Del Bello to tell us why. Hi, Lou. Hi, John. So building a more sustainable and climate resilient future on a cold-based economy is tricky, to say the least. And it's not just a scientific problem, because the climate science is there and experts have plenty of suggestions on how to adapt to a warming planet. 
But still, adaptation is a major challenge, isn't it? Yes. And according to the NDG's 2014 report, global emissions of carbon dioxide continued to rise and in 2011 they were almost 50% above the 1990 level. And I see that in addition, millions of hectares of forest are lost every year, many species are now closer to extinction, and renewable water resources are becoming even scarer. Exactly. And according to experts, to reverse this trend, there's no need for more science, because the science is there, Mm -hmm. but better governance. So to find out if that's really the case, I sat down to talk with Joyeta Gupta, She's a professor of environment and development in the Global South at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She's also the author of The History of Global Climate Governance, and she thinks that governance is the key to build a low-carbon future. I asked her what's needed to turn big ideas into local solutions. So if you take, for example, the human right to water, There are problems, and the human right to water basically recognizes that every human being should have the right to water and sanitation services. And then the question of implementation comes. Of course, when you're implementing it in a particular village in India, it might have a different contextual implication than if you're trying to implement it in Nigeria. But the idea that you are going to try and prioritize the very poorest is the key element that you're trying to convey. So there are elements that you can try from a global level to circulate worldwide because you think human dignity is important. I imagine that the private sector will have a big part in the implementation of green technologies. The private sector will engage in global ideas if they can make profits out of it and if they can please their shareholders. If they cannot please their shareholders, they will not. Very often they will argue that we can't take action alone because if we take action alone, it will raise the price of our good compared to those people who don't uh, also take ecologically sound action. A private sector will adopt a global idea if it is profitable. And otherwise, they will want that the global ideas get made into rules across the board before they will adopt those ideas, because otherwise it's no longer profitable for them. And according to Professor Gupta, the responsibility for change lies somewhere else. The scientific community has to explain the problem to citizens as well as the journalists as well as the states. And states have to take responsibility. And if states don't want to take responsibility, and they're very powerful, and there's nothing you can do about it. So if the United States says we will not participate in the Kyoto Protocol, um, there's nothing that the world can do about it except uh, isolate the US. Well, that sounds like a dead end. Not really. Professor Gupta believes that joint action can eventually bring reluctant governments to an agreement. The problem is it's not as the U.S. is not aware of the impacts of climate change. The bulk of the scientists on climate change come from the United States. And so their, their scholarly contribution to the whole climate change debate is incredibly high. The question is how do we t- change the dynamics in the Senate politics such that we can get them to proactively move towards renewables and to slow down the investments in fossil fuels. And that's more difficult. What I feel very strongly about is that we all in, we all need to put tremendous amounts of pressure on the United States. And I think that this can only be done through isolation. And I, I'm, I'm not willing to accept the argument that because we are so economically dependent on each other that we can't try to create that isolation. We need to put pressure on the U.S. And I also think that maybe if China invests quite heavily in renewables, which it is doing now, that itself will put quite a lot of pressure on the U.S. to try and see how they can compete in the new market in, of renewables. But John, I still wasn't convinced that a positive outcome would be straightforward. 
I discussed with Joyeta Gupta because I wanted to know what would happen to vulnerable countries, such as the least developed ones, by the time rich nations make up their mind on climate change. I think the question is whether you can have equitable development in the face of a low-carbon economy. I mean, countries that are already struggling with their resources really can't afford further sacrifices. What we have found is that there is no automatic incentive for rich countries to decouple their emissions. You need governance. So if there is no strong governance, the emissions keep going up, which means the northern countries are not a model for the south. So that means that the South should not follow in the footsteps of the North, but must find a new route for themselves. And finding a new route is a, is a frightening task because you don't know whether it will work or not. But this requires clear-cut leadership in the South. And you're not, it's not very clear whether we will see that leadership. But in, in many ways, the South has to find a completely alternative pathway to development. So we're in an age of uncertainty where the old leadership models don't work for the new environmental challenges that we face. And that's scary, mm. but it also opens up opportunities for the developing world to express its potential in science and also in governance. Very interesting. Well, thanks, Lou. Stay with us as we're keen to hear what you'll be up to in the coming months. But now, here's that mystery sound we played earlier. That's the sound of a grey-crowned crane, a gorgeous but endangered species that makes its home on the marshlands of Rwanda. Olivia Nsengimana is a Rwandan vet who has chosen conservation as his life mission and is now fighting to save the grey-crowned crane, which is a symbol of wealth and longevity in his country. He was one of the winners of the 2014 Rolex Awards for Enterprise. We caught up with him after he received his award in London back in June. Olivier, so first of all, congratulations to you. Thank you very much. Now, tell me about the crane. How did, how did you get the idea that that was an animal that you wanted to concentrate on? Um, the crane is it's, it's a beautiful bird and uh, noticeable. So when you go around now in my country, you realise it's, uh, it's in captivity a lot. You find it in hotels and in people's homes. And you start asking yourself, like, why? And when you read, um, has been actually uplisted from uh, vulnerable to endangered species in 2012 by the IUCN Red List. So um, when you look at the situation in my country, there are only a few, few hundreds left in, in the world. That's the big motivation that pushed me to just having a project, protecting them, and partly also to do something from a country. Can you tell me how you will persuade uh, policymakers in your country that it's not just the animal, the, the crane or the, the beautiful mountain gorilla, but that it's the habitat that these animals live in that needs protection? Is that a huge challenge? Um, it's, it's quite a challenge, but I think in Rwanda people have quite good initiatives as long as they understand the reason why and I think what we need to understand is that we need to live in harmony because the same threat that cranes are having it's similar to what gorillas, mountain gorillas are having like destruction of the habitat. People are pushing far uh, for, for, for like agriculture. They want to grow crops for their family or they are going to the forest for um, 
uh, wood or just setting scenarios for like some herbivores to get some source of protein. So it's the same concept and I think as it's working for the mountain gorillas, it's going to work as well for the grey crown cranes. We heard the word uh, iconic in relation to this uh, beautiful bird. It is iconic. Uh, it's a symbol. What would you say it's a symbol of in terms of Rwanda's future? Um, you know, when you go to the scientific background, uh, cranes, they live in the in marshlands. And, uh, and in those places, that's where they find suitable habitat for reproduction, for feeding. So... If they are not there, it's like a sentinel that something's wrong. Like, so they are like um, a sign of uh, wealth, like healthy, like environment, healthy marshland. So, so in that sense, I think that's how much it's iconic and a sentinel, a, a, like an indicator of wealth, uh, habitat, wealth, marshland, wealth resources that we have. Just one final question on education and yeah. the role of higher education. You've already mentioned that uh, you think that your um, award here will uh, stimulate uh, education projects. Are you part of any research initiatives at universities in Rwanda? No, um, I'm not associated to any university, but what I think this will help is so many young Rwandans, when they finish their training, uh, they always like sit or wait for employment. And I think it's time that people start thinking what they can do for themselves, what they can invent, to have initiatives, and this, this uh, spirit of entrepreneurship, like just to, to be entrepreneurs for themselves. So um, this is um, a proof, or even like can serve as a role model that it's possible. Like once you think you have your thoughts, you can put them into writing, into practice, and there out there there are people who are ready to help you and just realize your dream and do something for you and for your country. So that's what I think how it will enhance uh, the, the the scientific and the education. They the putting into practice what we learn from school. Olivier, congratulations again, and thank you very much. Thank you. And good luck in your future work. Thank you very much. Well, that was Olivier and Sengimana talking to Kaz Yanovsky, who's just joined me here in the studio. Hello, Kaz. Hello, John. Kaz, this is quite unusual, isn't it? It's an award for enterprise, but for conservation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. What Olivier actually said that the it's obviously important to conserve species um, for all sorts of reasons. But I think the one that really impressed me, and I think it's the thing that struck the judges when they were choosing this award uh, is that this uh, beautiful bird, this this crane, uh, is an indicator, as are all species, of um, how well a country is just in terms of its health, its ecosystem, its water, its air. So if you have these animals, uh, they are more or less telling us uh, what a country is like, what sort of condition it's in. So I think the innovation is, is certainly well deserved. But shouldn't this award really be going to, towards helping people rather than a rare bird? Well, John, if, if a, an ecosystem is healthy, then the people that live in it are going to be healthy too. And we mustn't forget that. Thanks very much, Kaz. It's a pleasure, John.
This is the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Eskam, bringing you the latest news and views on science and development. And now for my next studio guest, SciDevNet reporter Imogen Mavers, has been covering stories on big data and its application to development. Hello, Imogen, and welcome. Hello, John. Thank you. So, big data's application to development. What sort of stories have emerged from this research? Well, a really quite staggering range of stories. I've been researching and writing stories on how different types of data and different tools for collecting and analysing data can play a role in driving social and economic development and also in promoting human rights in diverse contexts and countries across the global south. So this could be anything from crowdsourcing data on sexual violence in conflict-affected countries to data tools that monitor the effectiveness of aid interventions and gather feedback from affected communities and many, many others. So a really broad range then? Absolutely, an enormous range. And essentially what we've been trying to do at SciDevNet is gain a more nuanced understanding of what the so-called data revolution might mean in different contexts across the global south. And really to analyse how it can have positive applications in many, many different areas. But also we've been trying to unpick the potential pitfalls of this explosion of data, particularly in contexts where access to data could be used to exploit or further marginalise certain groups of people. Okay, so you've been speaking to Chris Alban of Ushahidi. Can you tell us a little bit more about their work? Yes, so Chris works at Ushahidi, which is an open source technology organisation based in Kenya. And he told me a little bit about the organisation's roots in responding to the post-election violence in Kenya in 2008 and his thoughts on how the global data landscape has changed in the years since then and also what the future might hold. My name is Dr. Christopher Alpin. I am the Director of Data Projects at Ushahidi. And could you tell me a little bit about their work, what you do? Yes. Ushahidi is a Kenyan-based technology nonprofit that builds uh, open source tools and other projects around uh, changing information flows for social good. And what I mean by that is that we build tools for people to use to gather particularly crowdsourced information, but all types of information about issues they care about, whether those are elections or disaster relief or corruption or environmental conservation. All of those, more and more, we're seeing people use data as, as a way of, of sort of telling stories about that and understanding that in ways they otherwise couldn't do. And, and we build software for helping you manage that data and, and understand it and visualize it and, and present it to people like policymakers. Over the last six years, I imagine you must have seen a big change in how data is used. Yeah, so when Ushahidi first got started, it used a crowdsource model of data collection. But at the time, it wasn't called crowdsourcing. That was not, that was not a thing that people talked about back then, right? particularly in Kenya. Nowadays, you know, when you move to the 2013 election, the idea of using you know, this crowd of people, this large group of people to send in reports, and each individual report might not be verifiable, but through getting lots of reports, we can have them check each other, and we can build a base of knowledge from that, that crowd. It's so much more accepted, and there's so many more tools available to help people you know, actually visualize that data and understand that data. So it is, it's a big booming field of the idea of taking this data in and, and munging through it and trying to create real value from it, where before it was very much at its infancy. So it's a rapidly changing data landscape then? Absolutely. And Ushahidi has really been at the forefront of exploring how open source data mapping can be used in different contexts to meet different needs. And they've created software that users can tailor to these different needs and contexts. So um, Ushahidi is used, I mean, as you said, it's been used all over the world. I think right now we're approaching 200 countries of where it's being used. It is being used in anything that you can frankly imagine. So everything from sexual violence reporting to election monitoring, environmental conservation, tracking pirates. And it, it's part of our 
Ethos is an organization that by releasing free software, we want to lower the bars to people using it as much as possible, which means that people can use it for whatever they want. And some people, you know, use it for these very, very complex tasks with large funding blocks and teams of organizations. And other people just use it for a very simple, small neighborhood crowdsourcing thing, maybe around potholes or maybe around gas station prices and that kind of stuff. And that's okay. We're, you know, we build software to allow people to, to do that kind of stuff. We don't care how they, how they end up using it. We think that's, um, that's the value of that system. That's the great part about open source software is that people can tailor it to what they want to do without coming to us, without having in some you know, contract with us to have our developers spend their time building this thing. It allows the whole community of users to come involved and fix bugs and change features and that kind of stuff. And we benefit from that because we can take that code in afterwards as part of our license to say, okay, you've developed a really great feature here. We would like to have that and give that to everyone. It is very valuable to us and it's very valuable to users. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier the dangers potentially inherent in this explosion of data and open data. Did Chris shed any light on this? Yes, he flagged up some contexts where Ujahidi actually advised people against using open source mapping tools, for example, in volatile conflict situations. Yeah, it's an issue that we deal with. It's actually very difficult to get a really strong handle on. So a lot of times people have wanted to use it for things such as um, corruption monitoring and that kind of thing using SMS. And they'll do it in, let's say, you know, they want to do it in a place like Syria, where it would be very, very dangerous to do that. And, and we advise them not to, right? I mean, we are very active about saying that's probably not the best way. Do you generally advise people against using it in very volatile conflict situations like Syria? We advise people not to use it in situations where you can endanger the people who are supplying your information. So that crowd of people, you don't want to give them the false impression that they're going to be sending in anonymous reports when those reports are not anonymous. And if there's an issue where you're exposing those people to risk that they don't know about, right, they don't have informed consent to know that that risk exists, it's absolutely we advise you not to use it for that. And what about the next steps for Ushahidi and Chris's thoughts on the future of open data and development more broadly? Well, he has some really fascinating ideas, including working more closely with major platforms such as Twitter and Facebook, and also trying to spur more cross-organizational and cross-sector collaboration and data sharing. Yeah, I think for us, the, the big issues that we would like to see, and we are starting to see, but would like a lot more of, is the idea of aggregating above tools. So we make a tool that provides data, and people can deploy that tool and you know use that data for what they want. But you know what? It actually would be really great to layer that data with, with, let's say, Twitter data and Facebook data and Instagram data and Pinterest data and Flickr data and all those, and put those together in a comparable format. Because right now, they would, they're stored in very different ways. They're stored in very different structures. But it's very difficult to compare Facebook messages about you know a flood with tweets about the flood versus crowdsource reports about the flood. And I think we're getting to the point where in 2008, 2009, there was very few people doing that kind of stuff, and, and you know, Twitter and Facebook were very, very new, and so that kind of data was was really siloed. But I think the value going forward is to actually get that data not in one place, but in lots of places, right? And have that data as as communicating with each other, so I can go and say, you know what, I would like all verified reports from social media about flooding in Bangladesh that have a commercial license attached to it. Give me that. Um, and that's you know something that we're starting to work on, but it's definitely our push for the next few years. So data and development, it's a really important area then? It's a really important area and a fascinating area. And I think the next few years for data and development are going to be really interesting. Um, but I also think from the research that we've been doing, what we've been discovering is that the global community also really needs to think carefully about how data can be used in development and ensure that marginalised groups particularly are really protected as far and as fully as possible. Well Imogen Mathers, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you very much John.
Well, thanks to our guests who've contributed to this edition of SciDev.net podcast with me, John Escombe. Now, Lou, I know that you have a special edition of our podcast in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. After my research trip to Ethiopia, I discovered water is not just important for human health and agriculture, but it also can be a powerful source of energy and a political weapon. So why did you pick Ethiopia to investigate the importance of water? Well, Ethiopia is important because it will soon be a major player in the world hydropower landscape. Mm -hmm. They're building a massive dam that once completed in 2017 will be 145 metres high and that's Africa's biggest dam. The reservoir will contain up to 74 billion cubic metres, which is about the total water consumption of Ethiopia for 13 years. And I imagine that a massive power plant will play a big part in Africa's struggle for clean energy supply. Absolutely. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, that's its name, will have an installed capacity of 6 gigawatt. If you think that the target set by the Africa-EU Energy Partnership for 2020 is 10 gigawatt for the whole of Africa, well, that gives you an idea. Sounds like a great success. Well, for many years... But people in Egypt will tell you a completely different story. Mm -hmm. They fear that the dam will hold back so much water, it'll pose a serious threat to the country's agricultural system. Mm -hmm. And the controversy is getting more serious. We can now talk about an open diplomatic conflict, really. So what material did you bring back from Ethiopia and from the majestic Renaissance Dam? You hear the voices of researchers and activists from both parts to help you understand what can trigger border water conflict. And what can be done about it? Well, conflicts over water are one of the biggest threats for the future, given that the changing climate will drive political instability at a global level, and in particular in poor countries. Now, Lou, I believe the documentary will come out on the 1st of September? That's right, John. And for the 31st to the 5th of September, I will also be blogging for Stockholm for the World Water Week. You can stay up to date with the International Conference on our website and on our social media. For news in real time, just follow SciDevNet on Twitter. Well, thank you, Lou, and we're looking forward to that. Well, that's all for this month's podcast from me, John Escombe, and there is more of our news, analysis and multimedia on SciDev.net. Until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>